come to this very solemn occasion. We're gathered here this afternoon for a memorial service for someone who's alive. That's unique in and of itself. Let me say in the beginning, sometimes little local customs vary a little bit, and I, I may not do this just like you're accustomed to it, but I try to stay within bounds of scriptural order and hope you'll overlook anything that I do that might violate some local tradition I'm not aware of. As Jesus came to the end of his ministry, and uh, prepared to make the sacrifice that he came into this world to make when he would give his body to be crucified on the cross of Calvary shed his blood for our sins he desired to institute for the benefit of the church in all ages an ordinance that would be appropriate for us to gather on a very serious occasion and remember him. And, and that's what we ought to be remembering right now is the, the Son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, Paul tells us in the Galatian letter that he was made a woman, made under the law. The fact that he was made of a woman gave him a body of flesh and bones like you and I have. The Word was with God. The Word was God in the beginning. But he didn't have a body like you and I have at that point. He did not have that body until God gave him that body in a divine conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But he lived in that body 33 and a half years upon this earth. And then that body was, was tortured. That body was torn and in a sense broken. But no bone of that body was broken. Right. The precision of the prophecy of God was such that he could look through time and prophesy that while he was afflicted and his visage, that is his face, was marred more than any man, no bone would be broken. As the sacrifice was being accomplished on Calvary, after Jesus had bowed his head and said, It's finished, the soldiers came to break the legs of those men who were being crucified to speed their death so that their bodies would not be on the cross on the Passover day. Jesus was already dead. He had accomplished the will of the Father for this body. And he yielded up the ghost. One of those soldiers pierced his side with a sword and blood and water came out. 
demonstrating that the man was dead. Now, we know the body was raised and that the body is in heaven now. But it is the breaking of that body that Jesus gave us by which we are to remember him in this service. It was and shall ever be a unique body. He had no earthly father. He was conceived of God. The, the Holy Ghost overshadowed the Virgin Mary. We, in the modern age in which we live, there's a great deal of um, zeal to study DNA and to and go back and try to check out historic events with DNA. If Jesus had no children, there's no tracking back to his DNA. But I've wondered sometimes what that would do to the mind of the scientist. If he went back and he found the DNA of Mary and God, they wouldn't recognize that. That would be a, a totally different situation. I realize that's not worth anything, but it's a unique body. He lived upon this earth and that body for 33 and a half years and never had an evil thought. He never said an ugly word. He never did one thing wrong in that body. When it went to the cross of Calvary, it was perfect. You and I are not perfect in the womb. We're not perfect when we come forth from the womb. We come out of the womb sinners. He came out of the womb a perfect He lived a perfect man and he died a perfect man. Even one of the thieves who was crucified and who had blasphemed against him all the day until the very end, at the end of the day, just not long before Jesus took his last breath, said to his companion, this man has done nothing worthy of death. So he's unique in that regard. The body is closely related to the blood that flows in that body. Now we understand that the blood was the redemptive promise. But the body had to be broken for the blood to come out. I don't think it ever afflicted the churches in Georgia, but a few years ago we had a group of brethren in our part of the country who got the idea that the blood that came out of the body was just fulfilled prophecy, that the blood that actually put away our sins all stayed inside the body of Jesus. That's just wrong. His body had to be broken, torn to bleed for that blood to come out, for that sacrifice to be made. Now Jesus took the disciples into the supper room They observed the Passover. The Passover was, Passover supper was a feast. And it's it's called that, the Passover feast. The characteristics of a feast are a large meal of 
things that would be desirable to the appetite. They had roast lamb. They had bitter herbs. They had wine. What's lacking for a really nice meal? Big old yeast rolls. Right? But no. God gave the, the menu for the meal. And it had everything in it that you and I might have for a feast. And then to go with it, he gives them unleavened bread, which does not appeal to the flesh. That's not what we would have with a big meal ordinarily. Why did God do that, do you suppose? I submit to you that God gave them unleavened bread for the Passover feast so it would be available to use as an emblem of the body of Jesus. That's planning ahead. That's being ready. So God gave them unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible is typical of sin. There's no sin to be pictured here, so there's no leaven. There's no vanity. There's no, there's no wasted space in this bread. Now, unleavened bread has all the nutritional aspects of any other bread as far as the strength is concerned. It just doesn't have the, the puffiness that gives the desirability to the flesh. So he gave them unleavened bread. And that bread was broken. And the Lord did that. That may be the hardest part for me to, to comprehend. That Jesus met in this room with those disciples. And I believe Judas was gone by the time they got to this point of the service. I think there were just 11 of the apostles left now. And he stood there in front of his 11 closest associates and drew them a picture of his body being broken. He took the bread in his hands and he said, this is my body. And then he broke it. Anybody here think you can draw a picture of your dying? And talk about it to your friends? Why could he do that? How could he do that? Well, his face was set like flint. He came to Jerusalem for that purpose. He came to this earth to have that body broken. And he's prayed to his father already, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. He's praying that you be with me, Father, and strengthen me as I come to this hour that my body is broken and the sins of my people are put away. And as he broke the bread, 
I think Jesus was looking way beyond the breaking of His body to the resurrection of our bodies, which could not have occurred had His body not been broken. So our sins were laid on Him. He was led away to the cross of Calvary. He was lifted there, hung between heaven and earth, and made His sacrifice to God. He was forsaken of the Father while He was on the cross. But even though He felt to be forsaken of the Father, He carried out the Father's will to its tenth degree and paid the price that I owe and you owe for our sins. I remember the first time I took communion at an old Baptist church and then I experienced it and then I remember the, the ones after it. It seemed like the men always said the same things. I couldn't figure out whether they're saying the same things, how do they the thing is it's for us to bring into remembrance of what it is we're doing. And then if it's if it's right and it's honoring God, it doesn't matter how many times we say it. It doesn't matter how many times a man stands up and says the same things when it's what the Lord had given us. You know, when you notice the communion supper, in the, the verses in the Bible are not that many. It's not a long section of the Bible. Um, there's way more on different subjects than the communion is. Four or five verses long of what that is right there. But yet, I don't know of any other thing that we make sure that we're observing each and every year at the churches. So four or five verses of the Lord is everything to us. Because we do this every year, we make sure that you plan, plan trips around being here. We make sure that we, oh, I can't do it. We've got to be here for communion. That's how important it is. And we took that, we just experienced that bread. I remember when I used to take the bread, I couldn't, I just, it was just, you know, flat bread. But it's, when you put it in there and you start to take it and you you start to picture what it was done, it's amazing. And the same thing goes with the with the blood, with the wine. And you think about the wine and what aspects it has of it. And I was thinking about this last night. The wine has is kind of addressed and everything is in a past tense. So when you look at the wine and it starts to talk to us, when you go over... Um, Matthew 26 says for this is my, my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remissions of sins talking about the forgiveness of sins it's been shed it is shed and it's done it's not that he was going to he's going to make sure that your sins are forgiven sometime if you do something no it's done that's how great our God is is that we are so many years removed from, from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we know that our sins have been taken care of. Amen. We don't have to have a burden over us that we have to worry about what could transpire, what sin could cause us not to be able to have eternity with the Lord. That is a great blessing. And we know it when we take this blood, we drink this, we drink this wine, it's not just to have a, a little bit of wine 
It's to remember what that blood has done. It's to think about how, how great it is. You know, Brother James talked about the body. But that body, a body by itself with no blood is nothing. It can't function. It can't do anything. You know, Brother Rick was talking earlier that he gave blood too often. He gave, he was at, you know, when he was giving blood every so, so many weeks and he got, he got where they said, oh, you're giving blood too much. Because if you give up too much blood, you die. That's what the Lord did. He gave all His blood for us. He didn't, he didn't just say, well, I'm going to give a little and I'm going to make sure if you do the right stuff with it or, you know, I'm going to make, no, He knew exactly how much He had to pour out. And He had to pour out the exact amount for His people. He knew how many people. He knew how many sins. He knew all of it. And He said, here's the perfect recipe. I've got it taken care of. That's how great this is that we're, we're remembering. You know, if you go over to, where is it, Acts. Over in Acts, and this is the, using these words in the past tense. It's amazing when you think about it. He says, we were purchased with His blood in Acts 20 and 28. Not that we're going to be purchased. Not that we have the opportunity to be purchased. Not that He's thinking about doing it. But He purchased us. It's past tense. Amen. We are bought. When we're sitting here today, when we are thinking about what it is we're about ready to go into and take the, the wine, a picture of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember that this right here is not given life. When you read the picture and the account of what transpired to the Lord, I mean, I would have, I would have wanted to have given it up a long time before. I would ask, just take me. I don't want to have to endure anymore. You know why he did? Because it's how it was supposed to be. He had to go through that. He had to go through those hours. He had to go through that. And he knew it and he still went through. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have called down legions of angels and said, I'm done. I've had all I can take. Let's, I don't want to do this. And you know, you would think that he did it. He gave his life and he he shed his blood for ones that were good people, ones that deserve it, but no. He shed his blood for ones like us. Sinners that, you know, Brother James has said, were sinners before they were even born. Ones that had, we, we deserve nothing and have been given everything. Why? By the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we were purchased. He shed his blood. We were purchased. And Romans 5 and 9 says we are justified by His blood. Now you talk about this wine that we're going into this afternoon. So it's been shed for us. It's redeemed us. It's justified us. This is what this blood and what we're doing, taking this little bit of time. You know, when you think about it, we are a very fast-going society. A few minutes is an hour. You know, we I don't have I don't have very much time for that. Oh, that's fifteen minutes. You say, well, communion it doesn't last that long. But you know, I've got to get to to this or to that. And we've got to hurry up and get home. Think how long the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross. Mm-hmm. Think about what He did, and not just on the cross, but the thirty-three and a half years that He walked on this earth, that He had left heaven above to come down, and to make sure He knew what that He was going to have to give His life. He's going to have to shed his blood. He was going to have to, and you know, over there in Revelation says that we were washed. Mm-hmm. We were washed in his blood. 
And when I think about that, and I know this is kind of one of those things that this is because this is how my mind works, but there's a there's a commercial on TV that has an OxyClean. And they put it in there and it's got a really dirty piece of cloth and then they wash it and they pull it out and it's it's white. The thing is, is we were put into blood and come out and we come out as white as snow. Yeah. The exact opposite. Man can't make that happen. Man can't do it that way. They can't take a white cloth, put it into red blood and bring it out or and bring the white into red blood and come out and it be white. Because it doesn't work. It won't ever work that way. But that's how great it is with the Lord Jesus. He washed us in His blood that we could come out and be white as snow. That we could see that the Lord, Lord God, when He looked at us, He doesn't see anything but us being justified by His blood. Us being cleansed from our sin. The remissions of our sins. We should be thankful for it. We should remember it. We do it today. Not because we don't remember it every day, but it's a reminder to bring in remembrance of what a blessing it is of what He did for us. John chapter 13, beginning in verse, verse 4. He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, <clears throat> we all like to talk about Peter, especially preachers. We like to talk about Peter because he, he gets himself in trouble with his mouth sometimes. He's always saying the wrong thing or sometimes the right thing at the wrong time. He's impulsive. Um, he, he, he speaks before he thinks. Uh, and, and it kind of makes us feel better about ourselves because we can always point to him and, and think we're, we're not quite as bad as he is. On this occasion, Peter is almost admirable. I said almost. We can almost admire Peter because he has the right instinct up to a point. He says, Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, washing feet was a common custom in the ancient world uh, as just a matter of good hygiene and good housekeeping. Uh, the, the streets uh, of Jerusalem were very dusty, and if you walked very far in sandals, uh, your feet were going to be very dirty. And so it was common to wash feet when you went into someone's house, but it was usually done as soon as you arrived in the house. As soon as you stepped foot in someone else's door, uh, they would either have a basin for you to wash your own feet, or they would either have the slave or the servant of the house or sometimes the youngest child in the family, to wash the, the feet of the guests. 
it was something that was reserved for the people of the very lowest status. This was not something that the head of a household, much less uh, a, a wealthy man or a king or anyone of authority would do. The washing feet was something that people of low status did. And so Peter says, Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. Here you are, the Lord God of the universe, maker of heaven and, earth, and of earth. I'm not going to let you stoop down and wash my feet, the feet of a sinner. Where he went wrong, though, was he told the Lord what the Lord was not going to do. Can you imagine having the audacity to tell Jesus no? To tell Jesus what he's not going to do. And Jesus answered him and said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Then Peter took a 180 degree turn and said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter says, if you're going to wash my feet, wash me all over. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not to save, needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. And I agree completely with what Brother James has said already about uh, uh, Judas already having left by this point. So after he had washed their feet, and taking his garments, and was set down, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Do you understand what I've just done? Peter didn't understand. Because Peter, Peter wasn't saying, Don't wash my feet at all. Don't even touch my feet. To saying, well, Wash me all over. You know, <clears throat> this what we're about to do is something that is a stumbling block to a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of people who are just very squeamish about feet. They're repulsed by feet. So the idea of coming to church and getting down on our knees in front of somebody else, somebody we're not even related to, and washing somebody else's feet, that, that very idea is repulsive to a lot of people. Uh, but truth be told, our feet are really the least repulsive thing about us. I mean, if you knew the sins I've committed, you wouldn't want to wash my feet, but it would have nothing to do with my feet. If I knew the sins you, you've committed, it would probably be the same way. Our, our feet, even though we think of them as being the lowest and the basest part of the body, being just a little bit repulsive and, and unattractive, that's nothing compared to our sin. And Peter says, Lord, if you knew, if you knew what a sinner I am, you wouldn't want to be with me. You wouldn't want to wash my feet. And Jesus says, in a manner of speaking, I came here to be with you. And I came here to wash my feet, and I do know what a sinner you are. I do know what kind of a man you are, and I'm still going to wash your feet. He says, Know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master 
have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus here, again, was not just talking about the custom of the day. He was not talking uh, at this point about washing feet for hygiene and good housekeeping. He's talking here about something that He is instituting for the people of God to observe in the Lord's church in every age, in every place in the world. He says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, I'm sure you probably already know this, but the word ought in the Bible carries with it a different weight than the way we use it. We throw the word ought around very casually. But the King James Bible uses it a little differently than we use it. When you read the word ought in the Bible, it carries with it the idea of obligated by debt. You remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, and he said, Ought not Christ to have suffered those things and entered into His glory? That's the same word he uses here concerning washing feet. If our Lord and Master has washed the feet of His disciples, we ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, I think we see the Lord's wisdom in the way that He has arranged this service. We have, you know, in a lot of places, this service would already be over and we'd be packing up and cleaning up and on our way home by now. But if we had done that, we'd miss out on a lot of blessings. I think we see the Lord's wisdom in the way He has set up this service. We have already reflected on the Lord's body, and the Lord's blood, we have, we have observed uh, two elements that represent to us what Jesus Christ has accomplished by Himself in His death on the cross. But that's not the end of the service. One of the one of the most one of the books that I have read that has had the most influence on my preaching and on my life, other than the Bible itself, was a book that I read several years ago, and it's a, a commentary on the crucifixion. And it's a pretty lengthy book, a little over 600 pages, small print, lots of footnotes. Uh, and, and that book just made a, a profound impact on me. And I found out a few years ago that I actually had a few mutual friends with the lady who wrote this book. So I pulled a few strings and dropped a few names and arranged to go out to Texas while she was giving us some series of lectures there at college in Texas and so I could have dinner with her. So I had a lot of questions for her. I had the opportunity to do that and, and uh, while we were meeting, I wanted to know about the process by which she wrote this book. She said it took her about 50 years to write the book. And she said originally, the book was over 800 pages. There, were, there was a third section of the book that was over 200 pages, and it was entitled The Cruciform Life. Now, that's not a word that we use in everyday conversation, cruciform. 
but it simply means shaped by and shaped like the cross of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live a life that is shaped by and shaped like the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, I, I asked her a lot about that, and she said that at her age, she probably will not live long enough to publish that third section that was entitled The Cruciform Life. And I've thought a lot about that over the past two years. I would give just about anything to get my hands on those pages and to read what she had to say about The Cruciform Life. But the more I've thought about it, as much as I'd love to read those pages... If she never she dies before she gets around to publishing that, I'll, that would be very sad to me. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to realize that if you want to know what the cruciform life looks like, look at what we're about to do. The Lord has already shown us a perfect picture of what the cruciform life looks like. What does it look like to live a life that is shaped by and shaped like the cross of Jesus? Jesus tells Peter in Mark chapter 8, Whosoever will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for My sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. There are a lot of people who would say that uh, for us to do what we're about to do, we look like a bunch of losers. It, it's the most irrational, illogical thing in the world to get down on our hands and knees in front of somebody else and wash their feet. You've got to be a bunch of losers to do that. Well, maybe so. But we're losers for Jesus' sake. Whosoever shall lose his life shall save him. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If we understand the first two parts of this service, if we understand the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the, the only logical conclusion to that is to wash one another's feet. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Some of you have heard me say this before. Whenever I'm in a communion service, every time I'm in a communion service, I like to watch people's faces. You caught me staring at you during during the communion service. I apologize. I was not trying to be rude. I was not trying to stare at you. But it's just a habit I have, and there's a reason for it. I have observed in every communion service I've been in that when we're partaking of the bread and the wine, uh, people have very solemn and very serious looks on their faces. And that's appropriate. We should. Because it's a very bittersweet service. It's appropriate for us to be very somber and very solemn and very serious when we think about the death of Christ. And if we left before we washed feet, we would all leave pretty downcast. But I like to watch people's faces at this next part. Because without fail, Whenever we start to wash one another's feet, people's expressions change. People's eyes light up. They start to smile. They start to get happy. 
And that's just the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus Christ made. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You know, the happiest life you'll ever live is a life of service to God and a life of service to His people. You know, uh, if we... Uh, there's some people who say that this service is really... God never intended for us to literally get down with a pan of water and wash each other's feet. He just meant that as a metaphor for for humility and service to one another. That God doesn't really want us to wash feet. He just wants us to, to live lives of humility and service. Why not both? You can't have one without the other. You can't do one without the other. If we, if we go through this service this afternoon, if we wash each other's feet, and we, uh, we get each other's feet wet and wipe them with a towel, and we all leave here, but we go away just as bitter and just as selfish and self-absorbed and self-centered, uh, unforgiving, holding grudges against one another, then we've missed the whole thing. But Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do. We'll make ready and, and get happy. Thank you.